Well, welcome to Bookish at Bethel. My name is Anne-Marie Koistra. I'm in the history department. And this week I am joined by Eric Leafblad from the Department of Biblical and Theological Studies. We are gonna talk about the Transcendentalists, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson and Henry David Thoreau, and a little bit about music and things that we're doing to cope with COVID-19. All right. All right. Well, let's let's just get right into the reading that students will be doing for next week. And this is uh, two readings by American Transcendentalists. We've got Ralph Waldo Emerson. I'm just going to put that out there as a name that you could use, Waldo, for your kid. Eric, right. did you choose that one? or We did not. We went with all straight Scandinavian names, Soren, Svea, and Sigrid. Uh, all S's, which is also really lame, but but well, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, then we've got the um, Henry David Thoreau on the docket for next week as well. So. And you could you go want... with Thor. That would that would fit with the Scandinavian. That's true. Theme, right. So it's not you know not Thoreau, but Thor. You, you could anyway, do that. You just could, a, just you a suggestion for yeah, for yeah. folks that are listening. Right. Um, so, Eric, do you want to say a little bit about, I'd actually like to hear you talk a little bit about Ralph Waldo Emerson, because as I understand, he was a guy who grew up thinking that he was going to be kind of a straight up minister, but then kind of yeah. had a different view later on in life. So could you talk a little bit about what students are going to read from Ralph Waldo Emerson? Sure. Um, I think, and, and maybe the maybe the way that I want to lead into this is by posing a question for students to think about um, as they read Emerson. Um, and it's a it's less of like an analytic question, which we do a lot of, and more of a, a kind of intuitive question. And I, I think I want to ask them to like what what re what really resonates not at like the level of ideas, but in terms of kind of the felt sort of intuitive, emotive stuff uh, of Emerson. Because Emerson, like you said, Emerson uh, was sort of on track to be a minister, sort of part of that kind of great awakening, heartfelt Jonathan Edwardsy kind of religious affections. Um, and I, I would contend, and I don't think this is that provocative of, of a contention, but there's a real, there, like I think, in a very real degree, Emerson never really left that behind. That that really is um, a lot of. Uh, the heartbeat of kind of what he did with his romanticism was just kind of this felt affective sort of life philosophy, uh, if you will. And, and I think I, I think if there is sort of a philosophical counterpart to kind of the pietist evangelical milieu that Bethel exists within, and I think it is. I think it's romanticism. Um, mm. I think a lot of our. I think this is why I wish we read Schleiermacher because I think Schleiermacher is, in a certain, certain sense, the the romantic theologian of the Enlightenment era. Uh, the, right. So that, um, I mean, arguably Edwards. You could make the case that Edwards is too, but I wouldn't. I'd say Schleiermacher is. So, um, so I guess the. I guess for me, I, I would kind of ask students to reflect on um, the how does the language maybe of of um, 
Emerson's romanticism resonate maybe with your spirituality or the way that you think about your relationship with God? Because there's some interesting, I think, overlaps uh, that emerge in that way. Well, and the question that you're asking students to think about strikes me as a very Emersonian, very romantic question because Mm -hmm. you're pointing them to intuition Mm -hmm. over something like reason. And this was something that Emerson was certainly all about. Um, Eric, I get the impression from you, and maybe this is wrong. I sort of think that you're a little bit of a fan of Emerson. Is that true? Big fan. Yeah, I, I am. I am definitely a uh a romantic i think this is why like music i i want to talk about music all the time because there's a there's a there's a sense in which um and maybe not to be like too sort of self-disclosing but whatever it's romanticism and transcendentalism so let's do that uh uh there's a certain sense in which like all of my intellectual projects kind of emerge out of um, this intuitive sense that I can't do anything else. So there's mm. that kind of extreme individualism to a certain mm-hmm. degree. Like, mm-hmm. like to do anything else would be untrue to my soul, untrue to my sense of of uh, who I am, which is a really romantic way of approaching life. Of, um, you know, I think if if you ask me to like look at like key moments in my life more often than not i'm gonna go to moments where i i am i feel something more than i've kind of reasoned Mm -hmm. my way to something so yeah i'm a big fan of emerson um because i think he makes he just he makes sense of the way that that life has uh shown up for me i guess okay well there 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 is that i i will say um what i also appreciate about emerson is at the end of the piece that we read, he has this little kind of what seems like it could be a throwaway section about travel in which he says, a lot of people feel like they need to go to Europe and do kind of the grand tour of Europe. But really, folks, we really just need to be looking inward. We need to be looking mm-hmm. around us. And so I do actually appreciate this very um nice appreciation of the provincial like and it's not provincial it's grand right but so i i like that but i'll just read you um another quote from emerson where i'm just gonna say he comes off sounding a little bit obnoxious so this is right at the beginning of the essay where he might be another reason why i resonate with him because i i often think back on things i say and i'm like gosh i sound ridiculously obnoxious so okay well here here we go to believe your own thought to believe that what is true in your private heart is true for all men. <laughs> that is genius. Do you want to comment on that, Eric? Yeah. So this, this to me, uh, <laughs> brings up another of, I think one of the really interesting things about this time period in these thinkers is that one of the things I want students to, to think about is there's actually a really deep paradox at the heart of, and perhaps contradiction uh, at the heart of romanticism. On the one hand, it's like, uh, and I thought Dr. Larson's lecture was really good on the, on the one hand, there's like resist limitation, right? And yet in the resistance of limitation, the, the move is to like go deep inside oneself, which 
I don't know about most folks, but when I go deep inside myself, all I encounter are limitations. I recognize my own, to your point, like kind of provincial nature. Um, So, yeah, I I wonder if there's not an inherent uh, contradiction built and maybe 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 the real. Well, let me finish my comment. Uh, I wonder if there's not a contradiction built into the romantics um, and the transcendentalists that this this quest for sort of this this universal um, truth or this great awakening, pun intended, um, ultimately results in kind of this extreme individualism. Yeah. And there's nothing less universal, you could say, than like the prison of one's own mind and, and being right so yeah but i wonder if what that actually expresses and this will be my maybe a something else for students to think about i wonder if the transcendentalist in, in the, the romantic era um, is actually what it's signifying is less of a contradiction and more of a, a transition hmm. um and so in in a certain sense they couldn't escape the enlightenment categories of universality and and um and you know universal truth but on the other hand they recognize that the extreme maybe embeddedness of individuals in their social locations in their in their particular context and they didn't quite wrestle their way through that contradiction all the way so they might you know to to go to the quote that you read of of emerson this sense that like nothing is more true than what I think is true. Right. And yet I think that is actually giving way to the modern and potentially debatably postmodern era of recognizing the extreme particularity of knowledge, of ideas, even of feeling, and yet uh, still sort of seeking for some greater meaning even in that. So I wonder if part of this contradiction that might exist or paradox, if we're being kind, um, doesn't actually signal that we're starting to transition. We're starting to move um, into a a new sort of way of thinking about and conceiving of the world. Um, Well, and I I can understand that the, the freedom of that is really appealing but I think because I teach in the humanities program, because I'm a historian, I do struggle with the tension between, on the one hand, the boldness of Emerson and that you know he mm-hmm. doesn't need to be consistent. It's how he feels at the moment. He's going to plunge ahead, ahead with pursuing what's true to him. So I like the boldness, but on the other hand, I guess I'm looking for just a little bit more humility. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, this whole like, oh, the creeds, who who cares about the creeds? Who cares about history? Well, I actually think those things have some pretty important things to teach yeah. us. And um, I would also say there's a point where he talks about like, you know, if my family thinks one thing and I think another, well, it's, that's too bad. They're just going to have to accept me for the way I, and I'm thinking, you know I, what, Emerson, that's, that's not how that works, really. I'm just going to say that. Like, that's not right. how family works. Like, we actually right. have to make sacrifices to get along and live together. I don't think I could be married to a great man, shall we say, who is only looking out for 
his own truth and so on and so forth. That's yeah, just and I th No, I think that's right. And I think that's part of what um, starts to happen. Uh, it, so if you buy my thesis that they're sort of transitional figures, like I think that is what starts to happen um, after the romantics is, is taking, starting to take seriously other forms of knowledge, other ways of thinking about knowledge. Um, but also, and, and because of that, also recognizing that other, the other, other people have something to contribute to what knowledge is, what counts as knowledge. Um, and that might be where like Mary Shelley's work becomes uh, really helpful for us in that yeah. like she's holding up a mirror saying like, look at these creations that you're making as progress moves forward and like, yeah, what, well, what, I think she's what, critiquing the great man. Absolutely. I mean, right? She's saying, yep. uh, well, actually, when men use artificial means to create things, um, they create creatures that they can't stand. Maybe women should be the ones who are giving birth to life, not men. Right. Thank you very right. much. So, right. uh, yeah, I'm all over Mary Shelley. I can't wait for students to read Mary Shelley, which is why... It's sort of fun to read these men who are like the great men and my truth, right, right. blah, blah, blah. And then read Mary Shelley and go, oh, wait a minute. Um, let's let's take another let's take another look there. Right. Yep. I'm glad that you appreciate Mary Shelley, though. That's already very encouraging to me. Now, I want to get back, though, to this other point you just raised, which is, I think, a really another admirable thing about um, Emerson and then Thoreau is being open to truth not coming from the sort of existing meta narrative. Yep. So I do appreciate that as well, that we begin to see recognition of other kinds of human beings, for example, having something to contribute. And that maybe takes us a little bit into Thoreau. I don't want to move too quickly into Thoreau. If you have more you want to say about Emerson, no, but we can, we can move into Thoreau. That's that works for me. I just got to throw out though. I think this is um, Dr. Larson's favorite quote um, from Emerson. Uh, a foolish consistency, writes Emerson, is the hobgoblin of little minds. <laughs> As someone who strives to be consistent, that again, I'm just like, oh, Emerson. Yeah, I don't know. So this will this will reveal my. Uh, is that your motto, Eric? You can just say. Yeah, and it, to a certain degree, <laughs> it is. So I, when I when I decided to become, uh, do my PhD in practical theology rather than systematic theology. Uh, one of one of the like moments that I look at, uh, I was I was in this like existential crisis of I don't know if I want to do this, and like the guy that I was sort of, um, you know, trying to ingratiate myself to because that's really what graduate work is is just mm -hmm. sucking up to professors. Um, he he was asked like, "What's your greatest?" I, I don't remember the question exactly, but it was something like, "What's your greatest aim?" as a, as a scholar, as a, a theologian. And he replied by saying that I would be the most consistent thinker there's ever been, which on the face of it is just like incredibly egocentric. And I remember just revolting at that, like, <laughs> Oh my gosh, no, like I, I, not that I seek inconsistency, but like the idea that one is sort of hamstrung by consistent or like is so has so much fidelity to consistency is like, what's the fun in that? So right. uh, I don't know. Yeah. So I resonate with Emerson of like, 
consistency uh, consistency can be a prison absolutely for sorts of people no that's absolutely true and I think um, with regard to even your love of music Eric um, you know the role of improvisation is really important but of course improvisation is playing off a kind of yeah. consistency though too and right. I think actually it's the two of them together that make for such rich musical yep. experiences yeah and I, I i i would agree uh with that i think emerson would too i think emerson likes to in a certain sense like cast off the shackles of tradition and you know be true to him to himself and himself only and yet he does that really still within kind of the framework of yeah. universal truth and yeah. uni universal enlightenment. So in a certain sense, it's like, well, he knows how to break the rules, but he's still playing the same game. Well, and he's also very much engaging with the meta narrative as part of his lecture. I mean, this is the other thing. I don't know if students will know this about Emerson, but like Emerson's being able to support his second wife and multiple children because he is wildly popular on the yeah. lecture circuit. So he must have been quite something. And I got to think the preaching experience he had must have played into his ability to um, mesmerize audiences. It's probably not just his ideas, which of course, again, also says something about the United States in this time period. I mean, Tocqueville is writing in 1831 uh, this uh, publication that we're reading is just 10 years later. And so there's definitely something in the air in the United States where people are going, um, whoa, uh, we like these new ideas. We like what Emerson has to say. We're flocking to hear him speak. And one of the things to point out, too, is like this is just at the time that the United States is experiencing its first industrial revolution. And so yeah. things are changing and people are going, where do I find my footing? And maybe maybe in some of the ideas emerson has to say which is yeah. really interesting yeah i think yep Agreed. well let's talk a little bit about the other author that students are reading henry david thoreau they're going to be reading the essay civil disobedience mm -hmm. and this was published in 1849 thoreau was um somebody who was a mentee of emerson and Thoreau, maybe a little bit less successfully, also went on the lecture circuit, but he was on the lecture circuit as well. Um, so do you want to give a little bit of an overview of what students will read in Civil Disobedience? Yeah, I'll confess, I actually didn't read Civil Disobedience yet this week. So can you give them a quick overview? I can totally give a little overview Thank of what you. students Thank are going to read in Civil See, Disobedience. We're, that's great. We're all no, that's in no the problem. Same boat. Yeah, no, this this would be reassuring to students out there who are like, oh, my goodness. Um, so in civil disobedience, Henry, the, and I think this is actually a good thing that I'm talking about it because he's writing in the midst of something that we really didn't talk about so much in our course, which is the United States is engaging in a war with Mexico. Mm -hmm. And you're like, why in the, why on earth is anybody writing about this? Why is Henry David Thoreau, who's in you know New England, writing about this? Well, Henry David Thoreau and many other folks in New England understood that if we won the war with Mexico, which was likely, because Mexico had just recently declared its independence from its colonial superpower in Spain, 
that we would potentially gain a great deal of new territory in what we understand today as the American Southwest. Mm-hmm. And Henry David Thoreau also knew then that this would lead to questions about would this new territory geographically in the South, again, very important here, would this new territory, would, would that be open to the expansion of slavery? So he actually writes civil disobedience as a protest against the U.S. policy with regard to the U.S.-Mexican war, but also about this question of, do we expand slavery further? And so he's writing this essay about why then he doesn't pay his taxes because he is opposed to supporting a government that seems bent on expanding slavery. And so Henry David Thoreau, I, so you haven't read it. Do you, had you read it ever? I, I, I've read it. Yeah. I've read it in the past, probably 10 years ago. I just didn't, I didn't have time this week to get to it. So. It's all good. It's, it's totally all good, Eric. Um, so Henry David Thoreau starts off um, in this essay by saying unjust laws exist. Will we be content to obey them? Or shall we endeavor to amend them? Or should we do other things? And of course, he thinks in the spirit of Emerson, that you need to follow your own belief system, even if it conflicts with society and the government. So that's maybe a well, and I think long this, overview. Yeah, and I think this continues that question of, um, is this a contradiction or is this a paradox? Because you can press that logically to like all sorts of ends, right? Like, so do we have, is, is Emerson, not Emerson, sorry, is Thoreau calling for essentially like millions of people to just follow their conscience and do their own thing? Um, is he making a social critique? Like what? And, and I, I think this is, uh, I think this is one of the, contradictions built into the heart of kind of the American collective consciousness is we are so ruggedly individualist that in the abstract, we hear things like follow your heart or, you know, do what gives you life, follow your passion. Uh, And we get really like that resonates deeply with us. Right. But what happens when our passion, when our conscience, when our, when what we think is, most true about the world comes into contradiction or conflict with social things. I mean, it's happening right now in real time, right? Like you have people who think that the higher good is for them to be able to do whatever they want rather than stay home. And so they're out protesting like this is in a certain sense, I think, are they, would they be heroes to David, Henry David Thoreau, or would they be, like are they wrong right it's hard to know because henry david thoreau in the essay i think what is very sort of transcendentalist romantic is he's not necessarily advocating that everybody join the abolitionist movement Mm -hmm. instead he's saying here's what i can do in following my conscience now what's also very interesting though so you know maybe in some ways he would say okay you're following your con i don't know maybe he would think they're idiotic but maybe he'd appreciate that they were following their conscience and this was what they could do. So they did it. I don't know. But I also know that what's also important for later um, activists is that Henry David Thoreau is very clear in the essay that if you're going to 
follow your conscience and break the law, you have to be prepared to suffer the consequences mm -hmm. of it. So what's also quite fascinating in the piece is he spends quite a long time talking about his, I mean, just point out one night in jail. So, I mean, he thinks he's a pretty big hero, you know, for going yep. to jail for one night. Yep. Um, and he's actually a little, but he's a little irritated actually that somebody bails him out because he doesn't do that. He doesn't give them the money. But he does, I mean, that is something that um, someone like Martin Luther King later on, like they are absolutely engaging in civil disobedience, but they're also absolutely being willing to be arrested and um, deal with whatever the government meets out in terms of the consequences. Yeah, and I, th I, think, that's, I think that's really um, an important, uh, an important uh, point to be made because I think... I think maybe the difference between somebody like something like what Thoreau is writing and, and who Thoreau was and, and then Martin Luther King Jr. Mm -hmm. um, and others who we might call, uh, you know, like agitators, perhaps, um, mm -hmm. is they it, it isn't or it doesn't seem to be the case that following their conscience is about um, or first and foremost about like individual self-assertion there's mm -hmm. still kind of a social um and i think this is true even of emerson too is and and maybe this is that paradox right that like the the deep truth that i intuit and feel actually has to find a way to be communal or social or collective too right and i think yeah. that is a little bit of a difference from the way that that we tend to think about right no and i think I think that's a really nice insight, too, because I think both Emerson and Thoreau do believe in looking to nature as the source of truth, that there is something organic, if you will, mm -hmm. that connects all humankind. And that's in part why Emerson says, like, my truth is everybody's truth, because he is looking for that deep organic truth that supersedes maybe the individual expression yeah and it's those it's maybe those things then so then the individual who acts out of a sense of conscious can actually become uh an agitate an agitation towards dialogue or an agitation mm -hmm. towards um progress or movement forward mm -hmm. or or something that can be done uh in terms of change or social change or like the point isn't just it really isn't until maybe I'll put it this way. It really isn't until the sixties in the counterculture where self-assertion and self-expression sort of come together mm -hmm. or expressive individualism come together. And maybe I'm anticipating or maybe I'm moving too far ahead, but I, well, but I do think, I do think yeah. there's something about this time period that, um, and these writers that it's never about Henry David Thoreau yeah. or Ralph Waldo Emerson. It's about them yeah, I'm backtracking a little, but it it is about them, but it's also about them in in service of something greater than themselves, yeah. perhaps. Well, and they're also big fans of the communitarian experiences or the communal mm -hmm. experiences. I mean, I think Ralph Waldo Emerson was part of a commune with some of the other transcendentalists. So there is this longing for deep human connection, even though sometimes in the way that they write, it does a little bit sound like the great men of following their, their own individualist passion. Now, Eric, I realize we could obviously talk about this forever, but I want to make sure that you do have an opportunity 
to tell folks how you are coping with COVID-19 as we're moving into, I don't even know what week it is at this point that we've yeah. been all in lockdown. How am I coping? Um, Any great music, great shows that you're just like, this is uh, how I'm getting through this? Yeah. Well, so my older two kids and I, we decided we're not like big superhero sure. folks, but we decided we're going to watch through the Marvel movies oh, like in chronological sure. order. Sure. So we're sort of seeing the whole universe unfold. Um, and it's, I'll confess, it's probably been more fun for my kids than me. I'm kind of like, yeah, this is, this is sure. okay, I guess. Okay. Um, but it's passing the time. Um, yeah, music-wise, uh, well, Mandolin Orange just did a, a live stream last weekend. Wonderful. That good. So that I, sounds great. Watched them with some friends. Um, Any books on I, your nightstand? Uh. Yeah, I'm reading. Well, actually, I, I have I've come back to uh, practicing um, the daily offices or the daily hours. Nice. So Phyllis Tickle's Divine Office. Yep. Uh, is, I know is it on well. Nightstand. I've been using those um, because time has sort of ceased to mean anything. So I'm trying mm -hmm. to reinvest time with some some sense of of meaning. Lovely. Well, I can tell you that um, I am still reading Dubliners, and I got it. This is for our producer Sam. Um, I I am so ready to read something funny now after Dubliners, because like after my last uh, short story, I thought, oh, just kill me now. But whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's great. It's great writing, but uh, I'm ready to be done with that. Uh, and I am working. Sam, did you want to comment? You can. No, Sam has no comment. He's just like, oh, yeah, I understand. Um, <laughs> and then I'm working on, for the humanity students, a little trailer because we are going to ask students to develop their own trailer for Mary Shelley Frankenstein's. But I'm putting one together on the trial and death of Socrates. And so I've been using <clears throat> music that um, the title is Death Has a Warrant. It's an old folk tune that was um, covered by a musician I like. So um, I've been nice. listening to that. Nice. So look for that. Well, um, folks, you've been listening to Bookish at Bethel. Mm -hmm.